All right. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. This hour we are in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 12, although we mentioned it last hour, it's not kind of a nice introduction. That would be, uh, I guess, if we were a slick marketing organization, we would call that a tease that we uh, teased this hour with uh, the message last hour. But uh, since we're not that slick and we don't tease things, we do thank the Holy Spirit, though, for bringing us to this passage uh, last hour in the process of teaching Colossians chapter 1 because we we were talking from that context about that which is teleos, that which is perfect. And we all should be growing to teleos, perfect status in in the will of God as we grow in the Word of God. And so in the process of studying that word, we came to this passage in Hebrews 12 where we are seeing a glimpse of heaven. And uh, there's a mention here that's made starting in verse uh, 22, and we're going to go down through verse 24 this morning. Um, But one of the things that's mentioned at the end of verse 23, it says, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. And so I want to break this down and look at this because I think I'm glad that we had all those other perfect verses this morning uh, because if this was the only perfect verse where we see perfect spirits in heaven, we might be tempted to think that, well, we're not going to be perfect until we get to heaven. Okay, And this is a glimpse of heaven and there are spirits made perfect that are there, but don't wait to heaven to be perfected. The perfection happens here, the completion happens here, the maturity happens here as we grow in the Word of God and as we endure the testing assignments that He gives for us. So stay tuned for that. I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer. Remember God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's bow before Him and ask His blessing upon our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have to study together, to assemble I thank you, Father, for the freedom that our nation has, whereby we can meet in a public building with a sign out front and a website telling the whole world who we are and where we meet. And we're here, Father, openly as a profession of our faith and as a testimony, uh, testifying to this lost and dying world that we identify with our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is the Lord's day, and we are assembled. And this is for your good pleasure and for his glory. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, to be active and powerful, to open our eyes, open our ears, and humble us, soften our hearts to receive the word implanted. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we get to go to heaven. Are you ready? This is exciting stuff. And actually, if you're part of our Sunday afternoon theology class, we went to heaven a couple weeks ago. We've been going through uh, some of the chapters in Norm Geisler's text, volume four. We went to heaven one week, we went to hell the week after that. Last week we went to purgatory. Uh, this week we're going to annihilationalism, which means we're going nowhere in, uh, in our theology class. So this morning we get to share the, uh, the blessings a little bit by bringing everybody to heaven. And that's what we have here in this glimpse. And I love the contrast with the mountain we are not coming to versus the mountain we are coming to. And the mountain we are not coming to is Mount Sinai. And that was what we were dealing with last week in verses 18 and following. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words 
which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. And so that was the frightful experience at Mount Sinai. And that was the experience of Israel when they were delivered out of Egypt. And they walked through the Red Sea and they were a redeemed people. And the first thing that happened for a redeemed people was they came to Mount Sinai and they were given the law. And they were placed under Mosaic law observance as a redeemed people for them to function as a nation, for them to operate under and in their Old Testament theology as the stewards of God's plan in the Old Testament. We don't come to that mountain. Now we are the church, we're not Israel. And we come to a different mountain. And that is so powerful. We have to, we have to read it, understand it, remind ourselves of it constantly. Because I think there's a terrible snare out there in replacement theology and other approaches to the scripture where the line between Israel and the church gets blurred and it gets blended and conflated. And uh, we, we want to keep things distinct. And we try to do that in, uh, in studies such as this. So we don't go to that mountain. We come to a heavenly mountain. We come to a mountain whereby we're approaching the holiness of God in reality, not in shadows, not in ritual, not in a replica. The tabernacle was useful as a replica, it was a teaching aid, but it was restrictive in who all could go into the Holy of Holies and how close you could get to the glory of God. For most of the people, they weren't in the Holy of Holies. They weren't in the holy place. They weren't in the courtyard. They weren't even on the mountain. They were at the base of the mountain, afraid to cross a line whereby they would be struck dead. And so while the Jewish nation had a certain proximity, certainly compared to the Egyptians or the, any Gentile people, they had a proximity as a people, but they were limited to their intimacy. It was only the high priest, and it was only one day a year that he could enter within the veil, that he could stand before the Shekinah glory of God. Only one man, one day a year. Thank God our dispensation is completely different, whereby we all enter within the veil. Jesus Christ accomplished by his work on the cross, he rent that veil in two. We enter with him. He entered as a forerunner. And we are standing with him in the presence of of our Father even now. So this is the mountain that we stand before. It says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now there's a long list of things here and we're going to go through them one by one. We're going to list them. It's useful to list them uh, and there's disagreement on how some of them get categorized and we'll discuss that. But what's really happening here, we don't want to, we don't want to be too rigid on how we handle it because the author is simply drawing the contrast to what he's already presented. And he already presented a mountain with a whole lot of things attached to it. So he went through a list a mountain, uh, blazing fire, darkness, gloom, whirlwind, blast of a trumpet. He's listing a lot of things really off the top of his head. We went to Exodus last week, we looked at that passage, we saw some of those details, not always in that order, uh, but what we saw the author here is doing is he's reminding them of how terrifying Sinai was so that he can present how glorious we have it in the church age and how it is that we come to the heavenly Jerusalem. So this long chain of things as well um, is, is meant to be a corollary. It's meant to be uh, a contrast with Mount Sinai in verses 18 through, uh, through 21. So in verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. There's item number one, to the city of the living God. 
the heavenly Jerusalem. So one, two, and three. Really, it's the same thing, repeated all three times. Then to the myriads of angels. Now that's something different. That's not a mountain or a city. That's angels. To the general assembly. What's the general assembly? We've got to study that. Um, And uh, the church of the firstborn. Okay, I like the word church. And uh, firstborn, we've done some studies on that lately. Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, who are enrolled in heaven. Enrollment, I like that. Because when the name is called up, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. That's right. Enrolled in heaven. And to God. Oh yeah, by the way, God's in heaven. Did you know that? But why is he not listed first? These other items get listed. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Well, wait a minute, we've already talked about the church. Is this the same thing? Is this something different? Why is this in this order? And and what are we really doing with this? And then we get to Jesus in verse 24. Like, wait a minute. Why Why wasn't he first on the list? All right, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. All right. Because boy, that just, you talk about tying a ribbon on a, on a bow or tying a, no, tying a bow on a package. I mean, this just ties it all together because when he mentions the blood of Abel, what did he just do? He went all the way back to the beginning of chapter 11 with the Hall of Fame of Faith, the first one of which we had the blood of Abel. And so it's, it's a marvelous text and, and one that um, I'm going to be somewhat frustrated with because today is our Sunday to go through this text. That uh, this, is our, uh, this is not our verse-by-verse, word-by-word, nitty-gritty, dig-every-detail-out-of-it class. That was last hour. <laughs> okay, That's what we do at the 9.30 service. That's what we do on Wednesday nights. 11 o'clock, we're more of the big picture approach. We, we step back with a telephoto zoom lens. We step back a bit and we get the larger overall picture. And so I'm going to condense into one class what we would probably, I would probably spend six months to a year right here on all of these enumerated items. It's one of the most comprehensive views of heaven that we have. You know, for a book that tells us how to get to heaven, it has very few pictures of heaven itself. Seldom are there glimpses of heaven. Hosea saw, uh, Isaiah saw it with a holy, holy, holy chapter, but didn't really detail it that much. We get other little glimpses, things about a crystal river or a crystal sea. We get little glimpses here and there. Paul got to visit there once, but he wasn't able to tell us about it when he came back. God gave him the thorn in the flesh, and it was words inexpressible that he wasn't allowed to communicate. But here we get to see these blessings of heaven. So let's start with Zion. Mount Zion. This would take a month or two just by itself because Zion is a, is a deep, deep study. And the way that it's used, let's understand in this context, Mount Zion in this context is not the Jebusite stronghold captured by David. The earthly Zion, in other words. The Jebusite stronghold captured by David renamed the city of David, also known as earthly Jerusalem. So turn with me, if you would, back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, and I'll just remind you of this. We'll be right back here momentarily. 2 Samuel chapter 5, and we'll see the first use of Zion anywhere in the Bible. I mean, Zion shows up a lot of places. 2 Samuel chapter 5. 
Zion shows up in an awful lot of places. There is no locality mentioned more often in the Bible than Jerusalem, and a lot of times it's Jerusalem with the label of Zion attached to it. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, this is when David is going to go from being king over just one tribe to being king over all the tribes of Israel. Remember, after the death of Saul, David didn't get the whole kingdom all at once. He started with just the tribe of Judah. But now in this chapter, with Saul being dead and the opportunity to unify the Jewish people, we see what happens here. So um, verse 3, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and uh, King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. This was a fortress. This had not been conquered in the days of Joshua. This was something that they had failed, a sin of omission, when they had failed to drive out all the Canaanites that they were commanded to do in Joshua's conquest. Fast forward a couple hundred years, 400 years, to David's time frame, and these Jebusites are still here. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul uh, through the water tunnel. Therefore they say the blind or the lame shall not come into this house. That it actually happened earlier, they were being taunted. The Jebusites were so boastful and so proud that no one could conquer their city that they felt like we could just, we could man the walls with the blind and the lame and still repel all of you. And it was, a, it was a boast that they made in taunting the armies of the living God. And David said, I'll show you the blind and the lame, all right? And he's going he's gonna to conquer this city. And so they do. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. The city of David. Anyway, this is our first use of Zion. The first reference anywhere of Zion in the Old Testament. And this is our use here. By the way, this is such an enigmatic study. As I say, we would spend weeks or months on this concept. The Jews themselves, to this day, argue about the meaning of Zion. The etymology of it, the origin of it. What does it mean? Where does it come from? And there's three leading candidates and a bunch of other minority opinions. And you ask a Jewish person today, and, and they don't exactly know. But they know it's a place of blessing. They know it's a future of hope. They know that Yahweh is coming and that when they, when they dream of Zion, it's more than just political Zionism in, in the modern state of Israel on earth today. The, the real Zionism in the heart of the Jewish people is the coming of the Lord and the coming kingdom. But they can't tell you the origin of the Hebrew word or where it comes from or what it means. So this, when we talk about Zion in Hebrews 12.22, we're not talking about that Jebusite fortress. We're not talking about political Israel today. We're not talking about Bibi Netanyahu or anything in the, in the modern state of Israel. We're not talking about uh, making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. This is a reality for every believer priest from the moment of your salvation onward. You are in the real Zion, in the heavenly places, in Christ. This is a spirit dimension realm in the presence of Yahweh in the presence of Jehovah. It is a spirit dimension realm. It's not in the physical universe. So you can't get in a spaceship and fly there. You can't travel there in a linear spatial dimension because it's outside of space and time. It's beyond the space-time physical universe that you and I live in in our bodies. 
It is a spirit dimension realm. And God created this for His spirit beings to approach Him. Angels are there. We are there in the resurrection. The departed saints are there, as we'll see. So my mother, Dorothy Braun, others that have gone to be with the Lord, they are in the third heaven, the spirit dimension realm, and it's called Zion. It's called Zion. And for the moment, the heavenly Jerusalem is also there because that's where Jesus built it. But it's not going to stay there. The heavenly Jerusalem will actually come out of heaven. The heavenly Jerusalem will descend when we have new heavens and a new earth after the millennium. So stay tuned for that. This is a spirit dimension realm in the presence of Yahweh. And so on our way back to Hebrews, we can stop by Psalm 48. And we can stop by these other passages. Psalm 48. Try to give you the ones that are as clear as possible because there's plenty that are somewhat fuzzy. (laughs) We'll talk about those too. Psalm 48. A psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. One of the leading candidates for the meaning of Zion is in fact stronghold. It's one of the uh, leading, uh, in fact, it's kind of my preferred guess at this point. Uh, if I have to, if you put a gun to my head and force me to choose between the three dominant guesses as to the meaning of Zion, this would be my guess uh, as it's connected to fortress or strength. But now several things jump out in, as we look at Psalm 48 and they're confusing. They're absolutely confusing if the only thing we associate Zion with is earthly Jerusalem, political Jerusalem, the city in, in, on earth today. Because first of all, it's not in the far north. It's not north at all, you know, on the north-south scale of things. And, and it's not, certainly not in the far north. And it's not beloved by all the nations of the earth. In fact, it's hated by most of the nations on this earth. And after the church is raptured, it will be hated by all the nations on this earth. Take away every living believer from planet earth in the rapture. With, when this world has only unbelievers left on it, believe me, Israel becomes the number one hated uh, object of Satan's attack. And so, uh, yeah, when we see here, the Lord is greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain, described as both a mountain and a city. Keep that in mind. Beautiful in elevation, joy of the whole earth. That's not earthly Jerusalem. And um, Mount Zion in the far north. And I'm not going to take you there this morning, but just stay tuned because if you ever do a comprehensive and a deep angelic study, and you study the five eye wills of Satan, the first one of which where he's dissatisfied with his seat, he doesn't like his throne, when he claims that he will take his seat on the mountain of the assembly in the recesses of the north. You go, aha, there's an angelic north that's different from the north pole of earth. (laughs) Okay, That's not an earthly north. What is that heavenly north about? And here we see it connected to the throne of God, which is why Satan lusted after it. But it wasn't his seat. That was for Jesus Christ when God said, sit at my right hand. All right. A heavenly dimension, a spirit dimension realm in the presence of 
Jehovah. Same thing in Psalm 50 in verse 2. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. And he's going to call heavens and earth to witness. He says, may our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him and it's very uh, tempestuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. We have a context here in this passage that is intergalactic in scope. It encompasses all of time and space. It encompasses the heavens and the earth. Remember, God created the heavens and the earth. Where did he do that from? Here it says, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty God has shown forth. Another idea for what Zion could mean would be beautiful. All right. Psalm 110. Psalm 110 This is a psalm that Hebrews quotes repeatedly. And uh, the significance of this, centered on the person of Jesus Christ, is undeniable. It is a Davidic psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, do we have two Lords? What do we have? Well, we've got the Father, we've got the Son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And this is what has happened. Jesus has ascended after his victory on the cross. He has ascended in glory. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is waiting to come again. He hasn't come yet. We're still here. He's waiting to come again. The kingdom is not yet here because the king is not yet here. Sit at my right hand until. And then he says, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of of your enemies. And so when he does come forth, he has the scepter from God the Father to come and bring the kingdom to rule. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, so we have a heavenly dimension there. In Revelation 14 and verse 1, the martyred saints in the tribulation. The martyred saints. They take their stand on Zion. And that's not a hef- heavenly, and that's not an earthly setting, because Antichrist and all the forces of Satan have murdered these people, these heroes. I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him one hundred and forty-four thousand. Here's the Lamb, and here's the hundred and forty-four thousand having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. It's a spirit dimension, heavenly realm. Paul calls the third heaven in 1 Corinthians. All right. However, there are also other passages where the distinction between earthly Zion and heavenly Zion is not clear. And you read some of these other passages and you're left, well, wait a minute. Is that the earthly Zion? Is that the heavenly Zion? Or maybe it's both. Maybe the reason why the earthly Zion is called Zion is because it was designed to be a reflection of the heavenly Zion. And that opens up a lot of questions. This is where we really want to find out the role that Melchizedek had when he was the king priest of of Jerusalem. How did this Zion name get its name on that fortress that the Jebusites occupied? So when we read Psalm 2, we're left saying, well, wait a minute, is this earthly, is this heavenly, or is this both? When he talks about worshiping the sun, and and, uh, this, this is a future prophecy of the millennium, 
I understand when you read Psalm 2, it reads like the newspapers today. It almost seems like current events. You know? The nations are in an uproar. The people's devising a vain thing. It's like fake news everywhere. And the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers against, uh, take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. So they hate Yahweh and they hate His Messiah. They hate the Father, they hate the Son. Saying, let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. Now it's always been true. Satan's world has always hated God and His plan. But it's going to be especially true in the millennium when God's Son is seated on the throne and ruling with a rod of iron. So he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Wow. Let's stop and teach that for a week or a couple weeks or a month. Is this the earthly Zion? Is this the heavenly Zion? I think it's more so the earthly Zion because the setting is earthly and that Jesus is ruling in the midst of his enemies. He's obeying Psalm 110. The scepter has stretched forth from the heavenly Zion and now Jesus is seated in the earthly Zion surrounded by his enemies and ruling with that rod of iron. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. This is the, the prophecy here too related to his incarnation and the hypostatic union when Jesus Christ, when God the Son receives a human nature. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Does that sound pleasant? Does that sound like a rosy, flowery, millennial kingdom of peace and rainbows and skittles? And It is not. It is not. The millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ is actually, it is, a, it is an occupational government because he has invaded militarily. He has conquered Antichrist in this fallen world. And he is reigning in the midst of his enemies. Keep that in mind, all right? Now I understand with sheep and goat judgment to start the millennium, he removes every unbeliever from the planet. So it starts with only saved, redeemed individuals. But those saved, redeemed individuals who survived the tribulation, they're still sinners. They're still in their fallen bodies and they start having babies that aren't saved yet. And those babies grow up and many don't get saved. So for a thousand years, you got all these generations. See, I, I try to teach the millennium as a failure. Because I think it gets mistaught a lot of times. As if the millennium is the same thing as glory or heaven. or It's, it's not. It's a rod of iron. And so we see it here and we see it in other contexts. By the time the thousand years are over, there is a Gog-Magog rebellion, that the number of which is like the sand of the seashore. When Satan is released from his uh, prison, he's been in the abyss for a thousand years, but when he gets released at the end of the millennium, he has no trouble gathering a, a mob of, of malcontents to rebel against Jesus Christ, to surround Jerusalem and demand his abdication, to say, come down off that throne. Isn't that something? Like they said, come down off the cross, come down off that throne. And they don't want him. Just like they demanded Barabbas. They didn't want Jesus. They demand Satan. I think that's how Satan gets out of the abyss in the first place. By popular demand. And then the rebellion against the throne of Jesus Christ. 
Anyway, Psalm 2, we can discuss whether that's heavenly or earthly or both. And there's an argument there. Psalm 20, more Zion references. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. I think that's the heavenly. I don't know why people think it's fuzzy. May he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offerings accept, uh, acceptable. Verse 6, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer them from his holy heaven with a saving strength of his right hand. So when you look at verse 6 in connection to verse 20, uh, verse 2, I think we can lock in the heavenly Zion for that. How about Psalm 87? More Zion passages. It's curious to me that uh, a lot of racially Jewish people today in the world are called Zionists when fundamentally they are the opposite because they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And having rejected Jesus as the Messiah, uh, the very essence of Zionism is removed from, uh, from the hope that they have. Thankfully though, they'll, they'll get sorted out and uh, all Israel will be saved. It's just going to take tribulation to get them there. Uh, uh, Psalm 87, verses 1 through 3. His foundation is in the holy mountains The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. But the word other isn't really in there. It's inserted. It's kind of, um, I think it's a quibble on the part of translators. They don't want to take a firm stand. Is this heavenly Zion or earthly Zion? More than the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. We've got a hymn in our hymnal about glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion, city of our God. And it's remarkable when we sing that hymnal that I think we need more study to understand what it's really praising. But it's a good study because this is what we've come to. Every born again believer in the church age, from the moment you got saved, I was four years old, almost five years old, at the dining room table in Seattle, Washington, and my mother led me to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And from that moment, when I believed in Christ for eternal life, I came to Mount Zion. Didn't know it. (laughs) looking back now I can know it because of what this passage describes so we have Mount Zion Mount Zion is also described as the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem description 2 and description 3 are expansions of description 1 so you've come to Mount Zion, you've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem now we're there now everything in this verse is past completed action you have come We are there, we are eternally there. We can't lose any of this because we can't lose our salvation. We have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You might remember when we talked about Abraham and his faith, he was looking for the city with foundations. He was looking for the city made without hands. He was looking for a coming city. But he never got to go to that city. Old Testament salvation did not place them into union with Christ. Old Testament salvation did not convey upon an Old Testament believer the heavenly citizenship that we have in Christ. We, we, we forget about these things. We read in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. And we just think, hey, it's always been like that. No, no, it has not always been like that. Abraham, Daniel, Noah, all the Old Testament heroes, 
these men of whom the world was not worthy that Hebrews 11 teaches about, none of them were heavenly citizens in Christ. None of them came to Mount Zion, the, the city of the living God, the holy Jerusalem, like we do. We have the stewardship of reality. Theirs was shadows and uh, replicas. Anticipations moving forward. We already read Psalm 48 verses 1 through 3 that mentioned both Zion and city of the living God. Isn't this interesting? Do you ever wonder why it is that when God put man on the earth, he did not build them a city? He put them in a garden. He built a garden. And then they got kicked out of the garden. And then what is the first thing Cain goes and does? When Cain kills Abel and then Cain flees, item number one on his agenda is to build a city. Why? (laughs) Well, because garden is God's plan. City is what Satan wants. Something that stands opposed to the city of the living God. Think about some of these things. So we have Mount Zion. We have city of the living God. We have references to the heavenly Jerusalem. We've already, we've seen it in Psalm 48. We've seen it in Psalm 87. So when the author of Hebrews blends these concepts, it's not shocking because the Psalms have already blended these concepts. That Mount Zion is a mountain and it is a city. Paul actually adapts some of this in Galatians 4 when he's trying to teach the difference between law and grace in Galatians 4. And so he goes, he uses a little bit of allegory, which is so rare in the Bible. It is absolutely rare in the Bible. People uh, try to put it in the Bible all kinds of places. They'll, they'll abuse the Bible by misinterpreting things allegorically that should be taken literally. And so I think in so doing, they cheapen the Bible and they twist it and they make it say whatever they want it to say. And, and also in doing that, by finding allegories everywhere, I think it diminishes the, the two or three places that allegory technically, literally actually happens in the text. And in Galatians 4 is one of those places because he says, I'm speaking allegorically. (laughs) Galatians 4.24, just so you don't miss his point here. But anytime you get a temptation to be legalistic, this is something to remind yourself about. We didn't go to Sinai, we came to Mount uh, Zion, the heavenly city. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, one by the free woman. That right there should tell you something. Freedom versus slavery. Legalism is slavery. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. Remember, there was no faith at work when Sarah said, here, maybe you can have a baby with Hagar. And Abraham was like, okay, twist my arm. And, And he had a baby with the Egyptian handmaid, but it was not by faith. It was not the son of promise. And Ishmael and Isaac have been at odds ever since. That's why the Arabs and the try to find a peace plan between the Arabs and the Jews. All right. The son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, the son of the free woman through the promise. You and I got saved by a promise. We're sons by promise. He promised that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but shall have eternal life. So now this is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. 
Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And this is allegorically speaking, of course. The Egyptian maid was not a mountain, but we get that. And corresponding to the present Jerusalem. Paul says today, in, in the Jerusalem of his day and age, was as legalistic as it had ever been. And he ought to know because he was the pinnacle, right? Saul of Tarsus was the champion legalist in all of Jerusalem. And he says it's bondage, it's slavery. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. And so representing, of course, our being the, the body of Christ, the church, this is complete agreement with our passage this morning in Hebrews 12 that we have come to Mount Zion, city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where we are spiritually from the moment of our salvation. Now our bodies are left on earth because we have to stay here as pilgrims and strangers and aliens. We have to stay here as evangelists and witnesses to the lost and dying world. He can't take us bodily to heaven the moment we're saved. That would leave the planet devoid of believers. All right, That day is coming, but it's not yet. So we have the heavenly Jerusalem, and that's where we are. And we've actually had this before chapter 12 because Abraham was looking for this city, Hebrews 11 and verse 10. You remember this. This is why he could live as an alien in the land of promise. This is why he could have a relaxed mental attitude about living in the land of promise while all these Gentiles still claimed ownership of it. Living as an alien in a land of promise, as in a foreign land. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. And so a son is born. He's 100 years old when Isaac is born. And then I think it's 60 years before Jacob gets born. And uh, either 40 or 60 when, when Isaac gives birth to, uh, to Jacob. And so this is a lot of time to be waiting for a promise. He's living in the land of promise, but the city never arrives. But he's looking for it. And it says in verse 10, he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The father's the architect, the son is the builder. Same way with the universe, same way with all that the father and the son do. He was looking for the city. And so this, this really needs to be our mindset as well. This world is not our home. We should not be so attached to this world where we love the things of the world. That's enmity against God. We recognize that our world is in our, this world is not our home, that our citizenship is in heaven, and we function there now. We function there in our priestly ministry now. That's where our attention is supposed to be. That's where we lay up our treasures. We operate in the heavenly places now. So we have a present reality that for Abraham was just a future hope. Comes back again in chapter 13, Hebrews 13 and verse 14. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. You notice that in the church age, we don't have a, we don't have a Jerusalem, we don't have a Mecca, we don't have a, the Roman church said it was Rome. Why? Why do you want to have an earthly capital? When our citizenship is in heaven and we're already on Mount Zion, we're already in the heavenly Jerusalem, we're already in the city of the living God, we function there now spiritually, why would we want to have an earthly replica? The days of the earthly replica is over. That was the Old Testament. But we have a city on the way seeking the city which is to come. 
And of course, Revelation 3.12, Revelation 21. Actually, I actually wrote about this in a couple of newsletters ago. The dimensions of this city. Revelation 3.12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. A lot of work to be done there related to our position in Christ. But he is the overcomer and we are overcomers in him. This is the the church age portfolio of blessings for all eternity are the uh, overcomer rewards of Revelation 2 and 3. So the city, new Jerusalem, called heavenly Jerusalem, called new Jerusalem, same place. It comes down out of heaven. Comes down out of heaven. And you can glimpse that in chapter 21. After the millennium. See, here's the thing. When, you, when your focus is on the millennium and you think the millennium is all glory and goodness and happiness and joy, you're missing the point. The millennium is awful. The millennium is rebellion. The millennium is rod of iron. It's after the millennium. Because it's according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're not looking for the millennium, that's on this earth. And so in chapter 20, we have the millennium, we have Satan released, we have Gog Magog rebellion, we have the destruction of the heavens and the earth. Because when the great white throne is convened, there are no heavens, there is no earth. They have fled away. Great white throne is complete. All the fallen angels and unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire forever. Then, chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. Big change from this earth to the new earth. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And we understand this. We know our language as the bride, the church language as the bride. Israel has a land grant. The Jewish nations have land grants. Job was looking forward to his land grant. What's the land grant for the church? We don't have a land grant. We're a heavenly citizenship and we have this city now in the heavens and brought down out of the heavens when the new earth and new heavens are created made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And this is where um, we talk about the blessings of having the tears wiped away and the no more sin, no more death, all these things. The first things have passed away. You get down to verse 10 and following. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. The apostle John gets a tour, gets a preview. And he gets to watch it come down. Now I've got a theory on this. I can't prove it. But every verse we've read mentions coming down. It never mentions landing. But it does mention coming down. Which leads a lot of people to speculate that it doesn't actually land on the surface of the planet. But it revolves above the planet. It becomes a new moon, if you will, to the, uh, to the new earth. I can't prove that. But I can agree with a statement that we have every verb that says come down. We don't have any verb that says land on the earth. So 
We draw pictures, we draw schematics, and we imagine. And um, it has a great high wall with 12 gates. At the gates, 12 angels, the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Now this is our residence, but Israel, each tribe of Israel has a gate to get in. Gives the dimensions, the foundation stones of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Abraham knew the city had foundations. He didn't know about the apostles. didn't know about the church. And then the measurements. This is what I wrote about in the newsletter a couple months ago. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod. 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles. Its length and its width and its height are equal. Now you can read that two different ways. You can read that each edge is 1,500 miles. Or when he measures the city, the city is 1,500 miles. And that's a total of all four edges. Depending on how you read it and how you understand it. And uh, the Greek supports either view. So it may not be 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500 high. It may be that 1,500 is the total. Each side is 375. It's 375 miles high. It's still a monster city. Anyway. This is, and we're already there. It's on the way, but we're already there. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, to the myriads of angels. Now, there were angels at Sinai but they weren't mentioned in the text. There were angels at Sinai, but we only read about it later. They are mentioned in hindsight from Deuteronomy 33, but they're not mentioned in Exodus 20. They're not mentioned at the time. At the time that there was thunder and earthquake and gloom and fire and and scary voices, all the things that were there that the text of Exodus 20 talks about, not one angel is mentioned. But with hindsight, we know they were there, but they were just there invisibly. The myriads of angels, they were unseen. They were unidentified at Sinai. However, they are identified as such on Zion. They are identified as such. And we know they're there. You and I have a mature stewardship. You and I function. There's a reason why the church age is the age that's given the armor of Ephesians 6. The reason why we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, the principalities and the powers. The reality of the church age and our um, interaction to resolve the angelic conflict. And so we have myriads of angels. 10,000 times 10,000. It's a, it's a, it's a big number. <laughs> okay? And some people just figuratize, well, you know, they don't want to take it literally. But it is a huge number, okay? And uh, I think all the numbers in Revelation should be taken literally. Even the 144,000 is then subdivided into 12,000 by 12 tribes. And, and if he gives a number, there's a reason to take it literally. And if it's a great big number that can't be numbered, he'll tell you that. Like the, the folks that get saved during the tribulation from every tribe, tongue, people, a, a great host that can't be numbered. See. All right, so we have the myriads of angels. I'm going to run out of time. This is terrible. 
Um, the angels were not seen. They were present. There was a reference, even Stephen makes a reference in Acts 7. There's other references in hindsight to angels at Sinai, but they weren't observed. The, the Jewish people at the time did not have any awareness of the angelic involvement. They were witnesses to the giving of Mosaic law, part of their learning process. I guess we'll close with this. I'm not going to get to the general assembly. Man. And the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. Or God the judge. I guess we'll have to save that for next Sunday. Let's look at Deuteronomy and Psalms. Deuteronomy 33. I have to wonder about this. This is written at the end of Moses' life. He composes a song in uh, chapter 32 and he's wrapping up Deuteronomy right before he dies. Joshua actually finishes the last paragraph. But as he's writing this, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. That's three separate mountains there. And why is he linking Sinai with, uh, with Seir? It was an Edomite mountain. And Paran, what's that about? And he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. And we get a glimpse, we get a detail. And I wonder if this is something that Moses didn't know at the time, but he thought back to it 40 years later and thought, wow, those lightning flashes. That was the dynamic of angels coming from God's presence in the spirit dimension of heaven. He came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. So if he came from their midst to descend on the mountain to appear to me and give you guys the law... Anyway, it's an interesting comment, and it's one I want to tear apart some more, and I want to dig into this and find out that angelic involvement. Because this verse seems to indicate that the myriads were back where he came from, not necessarily here as the law was given. Psalm 68, though, gives us a different glimpse. And since Scripture has to be compared to Scripture, and God's not a liar in any passage, every passage must be true. So we take that for granted and then we reconcile and we find how all these passages are literally true. And, uh, wow. <laughs> Did I say I was out of time? Can I keep you an extra 20 minutes? Psalm 68. This is, this is something. All right, but... Um, the glories of God and what He does, the Father of the fatherless, the judge for the widows, making a home for the lonely, leading out prisoners into prosperity. I mean, God does what only God can do, and we just watch in amazement how faithful He is. The earth quaked, the heavens also dropped rain in the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. So this is a bit of a hindsight looking back to the Sinai moment when Moses gave the law. And what all was happening there? What was happening on that event? And then we get these other places that are mentioned. In verse 15, a mountain of God 
is the mountain of Bashan. Well, wait a minute. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Now, how does Bashan relate to Zion? And what's happening here? Why is it that there were bowls of Bashan surrounding Jesus when he was hanging on the cross? Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? So there's a competition between mountains. And Bashan doesn't like what Zion's got going on. There's a jealousy. There's an envy, which we understand is Satan and his envy. So the bowls of Bashan, the mountains of Bashan, many peaks, but they're looking at the mountain of God. Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads of thousands upon thousands. The chariots of God. What happens when God goes mobile with his throne? Okay? Because God has a throne in the heavenly dimension, but there have been occasions where he goes forth in this throne chariot. Ezekiel saw it. Other prophets have seen it. The psalmist here sees it. When God personally transition, of course he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, but when he focuses his attention from the heavenly dimension to have a physical manifestation on this earth going forth on his chariots. And the chariots are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. Wow. Again, it's hindsight. It's, it's telling us that there were angels at Sinai when, when Moses gave the law, but Moses himself was not even aware of it, theoretically, that it wasn't mentioned in Exodus 20. It wasn't mentioned anywhere as they were building the tabernacle or doing those things. But with the hindsight, we know they were there because God's chariot was there. And then when God becomes a man and comes to this earth, you have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives, you have received gifts among men. Recognize that passage? It's quoted in Ephesians. It's talking about Jesus who descended and who ascended. And the glory is there. All right, I'm out of time. You see why this is such a deep study? You see why I'm praying the Lord gives us long enough to live long enough to come back and to teach Hebrews verse by verse? It's probably a 20-year study. Here we're doing it in three years. See? And most everybody's just anxious to wrap it up and move on to Genesis. I am too, but still, there's blessings. There's blessings for us to, uh, to learn from. Father, I thank you for this glimpse. It's a glimpse of the heavenly, and I pray that we don't lose this glimpse. I pray that we daily, moment by moment, consider that we have come to Mount Zion. We have come to your holy city, the heavenly Jerusalem. We have come to myriads of angels. They are watching our life Through watching the church, the angels come to learn the manifold wisdom of God. I pray that we are a good display. I pray that we maintain our testimony as such that the angels can glorify you and your plan for what you've accomplished. We don't get the credit. It's all by virtue of your Son and His glory. Father, uh, we're admonished to set our mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. We know that... um, because of the, the Colossians imperative, but now we know it even more. Thank you for this beautiful description. Help us to never lose sight of it. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.